You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Logan Thompson. I'm the students minister here at Northway. Uh, Husband to Katie, dad to sweet baby Jane. Uh, If you have a little one in here and they're loud and crazy, that's okay. That's just my house every day. You won't throw me off at all, parents. Uh, I'm with you on that. Um, If you guys would mind praying with me, we're going to talk about a a decently heavy topic together. Uh, Merry Christmas. And uh, anyways, so let's pray. Would you bow your heads? Would you first just pray for your own heart silently? Asking that God would speak to you through his word. And maybe for the first time you would see Jesus. Would you pray for those around you? The same prayer. Well, Father, we love you. Ask that you would give me uh, endurance and faithfulness to proclaim Jesus, that we would leave here having encountered him and being changed forever. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 2017, I woke up on my last day in Rome, and the rest of my friends uh, had booked a 4 a.m. flight. To my deep delight, I found a discounted flight far cheaper at 9 a.m. So they got up in the dark, they left, I had a slow morning, uh, left the Airbnb with plans of a peaceful trip to the airport, and then my phone died. Panic begins to rise when I realize I can't speak Italian. And I'm trying to remember, was it that train station or that one? Which platform was it again? And all of a sudden, that 4 a.m. flight looked really appealing because all my friends were together, having these great memories probably, while I was isolated, becoming ready to live on the streets of Rome for the rest of my life. I tell you that story because as followers of Jesus, I think sometimes we can experience that same feeling from a spiritual perspective that there are times in our life where doubts arise and we feel cut off because no one else seems to be asking the questions that are haunting us. The world seems to be kind of wobbling beneath our feet. And typically when, when we talk about doubt, there's many different catalyzers or causes that it can spring from. But I thought about just listing out the, the four main categories that I could think of uh, as we consider it today. So the first category that I would say doubt springs from would be what I call rival loves. Something or someone in our life begins to compete with our desire to love and obey God. The second category is pain and suffering. In our hurt, we begin to feel the weight of some very serious questions about God's character. Is he good? Doctrinal or scriptural agitation would be third. Doctrinal or scriptural agitation. This is when a teaching in the church or a passage of the Bible we read has us ponder if the wisdom of God really is wisdom. And finally, the fourth category would be church wounds or scandals. Someone we love or look up to chooses to sin. And the backlash marks us 
And it can lead to very blurry moments in our mind between this person who has harmed us or disappointed us and Jesus, and it becomes difficult to tell them apart. And the question I want to consider with you this morning is what is the purpose of doubt and disorientation in the life of a believer, and how should we respond? What is the purpose of doubt and disorientation in the life of a believer, and how should we respond? Well, a popular path that we could take is one that you've probably heard of if you're on social media recently, and it's called deconstruction. Now, when I say the word deconstruction, I want to define that because defining terms is always helpful. I would say deconstruction is the process of using the world's values and definitions to disassemble and uproot one's faith, resulting in a new and almost unrecognizable belief system. The process of using the world's values and definitions to disassemble and uproot one's faith, resulting in a new, almost unrecognizable belief system. How does deconstruction have us respond to those four catalyzers we mentioned earlier? Well, when, when there are rival loves, so think of things we desire more than loving or obeying God, uh, they begin to crowd our hearts. This could be a love of the approval of other people, a love of control, a love of ourselves, a love of money, a love of family, etc. An obvious example of rival loves in our context is sexuality and identity. Who you want to be with or who you want to be. Using the world's ethics and morals, we would come to any text in the Bible that does not allow us to be that person or become that person, and we automatically doubt, doubt its clarity or its authority over our lives. We do this because the Bible is not agreeing with our definition of love, freedom, goodness, or modern views. The root of this is rival loves that can choke out our love for God. Sometimes we desire to sin, and we need to rearrange our belief system in order to deal with the guilt. And this bleeds right into moments of doctrinal or scriptural agitation, where it becomes like muscle memory to reject any part of the scriptures that do not meet the, the world's current ethical or moral standards. Over time, the Bible is reduced to just some good moral teachings of Jesus from the Gospels, but just certainly not the parts where he rises from the dead or claims to be God. The Bible is functionally remade into whatever we uh, see it as most pleasing. We become its author and its editors. Third, when deep pain and suffering comes to deconstruct would have us deny the very love of God, his heart, his goodness. God is no longer seen as worthy of your worship. In the world of deconstruction, a process begins of receding or shrinking belief. So you may start saying that you are a Bible-believing Christian. You believe in the God of the Bible, but over time, the belief shifts into a vague theism. This would be believing that God exists, but you don't want anything to do with him because he has allowed pain or evil. If you go further down into, into this, you hit deism. This would say that there was a creator, but suffering is evidence that they have removed themselves far from us. And if taken all the way down, you can end up in atheism. 
believing that due to the presence of pain, there must be nothing or no one good beyond us. The most sensitive one to speak to here is church wounds and scandals because it can be so damaging to your faith and complex, hard to untangle. I was at a conference a few years ago and a person stood up and gave a 30-minute testimony in detail of how a spiritual leader in their life abused them, how this spiritual leader tried to cover it up, and how this person who had survived tried to reassemble their faith. And it hit me like a weight of bricks because the person that was spoken of was my old pastor. I had to leave the room and call my wife in tears because I didn't didn't know what was up and what was down. If you're in that season, I'm so sorry. But deconstruction, instead of lamenting and mourning together with the church, uh, would have us throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. It would say that system of belief or that particular doctrine is to blame, so you need to get rid of it all and get out of the church. Or maybe it's not just one person who has hurt you, but it's, it's how seemingly large portions of the church have carried themselves politically. And so the faith that you grew up with is now associated with something you want nothing to do with. And as I mentioned before, if you're on social media and you have friends in the Christian sphere, uh, you've probably seen some references to deconstruction people who have at one point stood in the baptism waters now post a new testimony on Instagram with a long, long post with phrases like, I was wrong. I have evolved. I'm sorry if my old beliefs hurt any of you. I no longer identify with the Christian faith. When we see this as followers of Jesus, we can feel confused and concerned, especially when it's someone you love, especially when it's a family member, or it's someone who you remember growing alongside of spiritually, or you grew underneath their influence, and now they want nothing to do with the Jesus you used to worship together. I attended a a small liberal arts college for my undergrad, And in the years since graduating, it has seemed like an exodus from the faith. People who I used to worship alongside of at chapel now want nothing to do with God or the scriptures. And it's understandable for us to have some lingering questions as we think, goodness, am I the one seeing this wrong? Do I need to evolve? Do I need to rethink and repackage and reconsider my beliefs? As followers of Jesus, we're witnessing this massive movement of deconstruction in a world that celebrates tearing down old beliefs and discovering your own truth. There can be legitimate concern that we feel. I think it would be helpful at this point to outline a few of the underlying beliefs or themes of deconstruction and then process to them, through them together. Number one, deconstruction holds that the new is better than the old. There is a feeling that to deconstruct is to bravely enter into uncharted territory. Second, deconstruction, since it has us reject old authority, calls us to collectively make a new morality, a new moral code that suits our time better. It is considered narrow-minded to tell people what to think, do, or feel. That would make this new society look like 
too much of those old religious fanatics. And finally, there's just an overall air of smugness or disdain toward deeply held beliefs and convictions that Christians hold in light of what the Bible teaches. Those who deconstruct are viewed as the enlightened ones who are just waiting for us to catch up. Maybe we should take a breath and re-examine these themes or foundations. First, when we think about this idea that the new is better than the old, ironically, it's a very old position to take. Paul warned Timothy 2,000 years ago that people will not receive what we teach, so they will pursue teachings and teachers that suit their desires or their rival loves. So deconstruction is less like bravely pioneering into uncharted territory and more like your friend coming up to you next week and telling you, I found this new gem of a location. It's called Colorado. You're like, yeah, I've been there. We've heard about Colorado before. Second, when we trade in the voice of God for the voice of the people, we better hope that we have some good neighbors and we better be sobered and afraid that we're living somewhere like Germany in 1933. Furthermore, as far as pop culture goes, I think we can agree that we are interested in any authority but the Bible, and yet we have a strict moral code being enforced. What you can and can't say, what you can and cannot think, and it's enforced with shunning. Societies that come together with the purpose of competing with God by trying to raise their, themselves to their level and replace him are as old as Genesis 11 and Babylon. Babylon is not a place you want to live. When all of this is boiled down for number three, we're really just back on page two of the Bible, as Dr. Tim Mackey says, where the serpent leans close and whispers, did God really say the perceived enlightened ones are really just men and women who prefer to define what is good and what is evil on their own terms and not on God's. As we sit and consider the path of full-on deconstruction, maybe a few passages of the scriptures come to mind. For me, it was the parable of the sower, where the gospel is shared. And the first group that hears the gospel, it's snatched away by the enemy. The second group receive it, but their faith is shallow, so it withers away after a period of testing or tribulation. The third group receive it, but there is thorny, rocky soil. And so the loves of the world choke out their faith. The fourth group receive it, grow fully in their faith, and glorify God. Or I thought of the story of the rich young ruler, this guy who, if you went to a Bible study, you're thinking he's in the kingdom, right? Like he's very obedient, very respectful, comes from a good family, seems to know his Torah like the back of his hand, comes to Jesus, and Jesus tells him, if you want to follow me, sell everything you have. And the rich young ruler walks away, abandons his faith, and is sad, and the disciples are really confused because if that guy's not in, how the heck are we getting in? The old school name for tearing down your Christian faith and permanently walking away is called apostasy. At first, deconstruction might seem liberating and new, but really it is lacking and unoriginal. So we return to our main question, unsatisfied. What is the purpose of doubt and disorientation in the life of the believer? And how should we respond?
The good news for me and for you today is that Jesus gives us a different way forward and a better answer. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to John chapter 11. If you're new to reading the Bible, the big uh, numbers on the page are the chapter and the small numbers are verses. If you don't know where John is, it's the New Testament. So check your table of contents. That's just really helpful for some of us who are still navigating the Bible for the first time. Uh, For context, Jesus is in the middle of his ministry. He has been healing people, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And in John chapter 10, he tells a group of religious leaders that he is equal with God. The religious leaders, in response to this, want to kill him. And so Jesus departs. He crosses the Jordan River with with his disciples, and he begins to teach other people the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. So let's pick up the story in John chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So we're introduced to three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus is not doing too hot. So his sisters call on their friend Jesus to ask him to come and heal their brother. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, familiar with the life of Jesus, you in your mind have already written the end of the story. Jesus is going to get to his friend. He's going to save him from a near-death experience. Praise be to God. We've read dozens of stories like this, so we're expecting as the reader for the same pattern to play out. Let's keep reading verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, here comes the part where Jesus rushes to his friend's side He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why, if Jesus loved them, would he delay helping them? Well, maybe we'll find out as we read on more together. In verses 7 through 16, Jesus will tell his disciples, it's time for us to now go see Lazarus. Disciples are a little worried. That's because they're going to be near the people who just tried to kill them. Uh, Jesus is not phased by that. Uh, He tells them Lazarus is no longer sick. He's actually passed away. He's dead. We'll pick up the story in verse 17. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Put yourself in the shoes of Martha and Mary. Can you imagine the pain they felt? Not only watching your loved one slowly die, but the heartache of your, you keep checking the front door every five minutes to see if Jesus is here yet, and he doesn't show. Verse 18 says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So the funeral has already taken place. The sisters have had family and friends come into town to grieve alongside them. Uh, But then the news gets to Martha that Jesus is finally here four days late. She goes directly to him. And it's my guess that Martha has been playing the what if game. 
I'm sure you've played the what if game. What if I would have sent for Jesus sooner? Would Lazarus be alive? What if I would have hired a cart and a donkey and taken Lazarus to Jesus? Would that have worked? What if Jesus wasn't so far away? What if Jesus wasn't so busy? Maybe I could be walking with my brother instead of seeing him buried in a tomb. That's the first thing off our lips to Jesus, isn't it? If you had been here, then my brother would not have died. She continues in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She essentially tells Jesus, I wish you would have stopped this pain, but I still know and trust that you can do the miraculous and that you have a special relationship with God. That statement contains an admirable amount of faith for someone in Martha's context. Jesus responds to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha says back to Jesus, yeah, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, Martha categorizes Jesus' statement into the same box as all the other words of comfort spoken to her at her brother's funeral. He's not in pain anymore. You will see him one day again. He's in a better place. So when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, she automatically thinks he's referring to an Old Testament prophecy about the dead rising at the end of times. It's his future hope of seeing her brother again. But Jesus clarifies that his statement is not about some vague promise of a future day. He is talking about a living hope that is standing right in front of her that changes not just the future day, but the present day in which Martha stands. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Jesus tells her very clearly that he is the one she can look to for help and hope. He will be the one to defeat death. And to join him in his victory, one must simply believe and receive his grace. He asks her, do you believe this? She responds with an emphatic yes. I believe you are the promised one, the son of God. Martha will then go and tell her sister Mary that Jesus has come. Mary rushes to him. The rest of the funeral party sees this. They think she's going to the tomb. So they chase after her to keep you know, be present with her, which is kind. And with tears in her eyes, Mary will repeat the first sentence to Jesus that her sister used as well. If you had been here, then my brother would not have died. We'll pick up in 33. It says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you buried him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. That passage is probably too beautiful to comment on. All I will say is that maybe someone in here needs to know that if, if Jesus was physically standing in front of you right now, he wouldn't say anything. He would just cry with you as the tears roll down his cheek. Let's keep reading in verse 38. It says, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take the stone away. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus and he says, hey, open it up. Martha squirms a little bit at this request. And she says, hey, his body is going to smell awful. I think we should just keep it shut. Jesus looks at Martha and references their first conversation. Jesus, or Martha told Jesus that she believed in him, at least in theory. But Jesus in this moment is not asking her to believe him through, uh, not just asking to believe in theory, but he's asking her to believe in an undeniable act of faith and trust that steps out, an embodied belief in Jesus. Now, up to this point, we have seen Jesus' identity affirmed, right? He is the son of God, the Christ. We've seen his heart displayed, that he weeps with those who are hurting. But now, now we are about to see the power of Jesus. So, so they took the stone away and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, untie him and let him go. A few notes to make as we try to answer our main question today from this passage. First, Jesus waited on purpose and his motive was love. He waited on purpose and his motive was love. This is verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus was not being cruel or flippant with his friends. He wanted to give them an invitation into deeper trust. Second, the experience that Mary and Martha went through allowed them to know what they really believed. As they met with Jesus after their brother's death, they both displayed a certain amount of faith in Jesus. Namely, if he had been there, then their brother would not have died. While that level of belief in Jesus is not to be looked down upon, we know that it is still a limited amount of belief. They view Jesus's power only as strong enough to stop death, but not strong enough to reverse it. This moment of disorientation revealed what Mary and Martha's deepest beliefs were, which leads us to our final observation. Jesus's first question to Martha is what the whole passage hinges on. Do you believe this? Jesus said, everyone who lives in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? It's the question ringing in Martha's ears as she tells her friends, open up the grave at Jesus's request. Do you believe this, Martha? It's the question rattling around the disciples' hearts as they see Jesus standing outside a tomb, calling forth a dead man. Do you believe this? And it's the question for you and for me today. In the midst of a broken world where there are things rivaling our one true love, pain and suffering enter our daily life. We feel rubbed the wrong way by the Bible and the church can't seem to stop wounding people. Do we believe this? that Jesus is with us in the pain and hurt and has the power to fix it.
You see, Jesus is inviting all of his followers into a deeper trust and faith in him, which is why he prays the way he does outside of Lazarus's tomb. It says, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. So again, I ask, what is the purpose of doubt and disorientation in the life of a believer and how should we respond? The answer is that Jesus purposes the doubt and disorientation in our lives to reveal our heart's true posture and to invite us into a deeper trust and right belief. Again, Jesus purposes the doubt and disorientation in our lives to reveal our heart's true posture and invite us into deeper trust and right belief. This means that those seasons where doubt crops up in our life are divinely appointed invitations into a deeper life with God. It is a valley that we should not necessarily seek out on our own, but when our shepherd decides to take us there, we go in faith, knowing that he will see us through, and on the other side, we will be changed. Now, if that is the purpose of doubt and disorientation, how do we respond? Well, I would suggest the path called reformation. When I say reformation, here's what I mean. Reformation would be the process of using the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit to charitably critique and change ourselves, the church, or the world when they do not line up with the kingdom of God. Again, the process of using the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit to charitably critique and change ourselves, the church, or the world when they do not line up with the kingdom of God. How would Reformation have us handle those four catalyzers of doubt? First, when rival love surface, Reformation would call us to take up our cross and follow Jesus, remembering that a core tenet of our faith is denial of self. There is actually a measurable joy to be had here because Jesus is better than any rival love that tries to crowd out our heart. Second, when pain and suffering arrives, we stand at the cross and remember the love of God displayed towards us. It's been said that you can trust a God who bleeds for you. And we also look to that future day when God will make all things new. He'll make all the, the sad things come untrue. He will bring justice to every crime. Third, when doctrinal or scriptural agitation is felt, we echo the disciples in John chapter six. Uh, in this context, Jesus just taught one of his most controversial messages. He had a huge following. He talks about uh, eating his bread or eating his body and drinking his blood. Crazy, uh, beautiful, but complex, I get it. Um, got off topic there. And the crowds are walking away. And Jesus looks to his disciples, the 12, and he says, do you want to leave as well? And they say, Lord, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We also know that there are things some of us were taught, either growing up in the church or when you were new to faith, that when you closely examine them, they don't line up with Scripture. Somewhere along the way, with great doctrine and proper teaching, some traditions of men have snuck in. And to take the path of reformation in these cases would have us walk in community, both in present, like via the local church here at Northway, 
and also universally the church uh, through church history, reading what saints have wrestled with and said before. All of this is done with humility, and we begin to use the scriptures to slowly, emphasis on the word slowly there, and thoughtfully prune away those branches that are not of the kingdom of God. This is the pattern of Jesus when he teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said. He states an interpretation of the Old Testament that they would be familiar with, and then he contrasts it. But I say to you, which is Jesus presenting a more accurate, truthful, beautiful interpretation of the scriptures. This practice isn't just for those outside of us, it's for us. We should be looking in the mirror regularly, asking, does what I believe line up with what God has said? When church wounds and scandals hit, we remember that God has entrusted his church to an imperfect people. While we cannot hold our leaders to an impossible standard, we should be able to see the long arc of humility, godliness, and repentance in their lives. And when we are wounded by the church family, we can turn to the Psalms that teach us prayers of lament and heartache as we grieve but still hold on to hope. If you are in the season, again, I'm so sorry. But I would invite you to look at the gentle Jesus who binds your wounds and gives you the strength needed to forgive as you have been forgiven. And this is for, for free, but sometimes as well, doubt will just come upon you for no reason. You're like, Logan, I looked through the four catalysts. I got nothing. I got just before God, before my community, I can't find the source of this. It's just on me. This happened to me. I moved to England to tell people about Jesus. Uh, and I'm going to this Bible study and all of a sudden the lights just turn out on my faith. And I feel disconnected and far from God. I'm like, I came to like serve you and now you're just giving me the cold shoulder. Like it was so confusing. So I'm going to my Bible study with other guys who have moved from all over the world to come to England to share Jesus. And I'm having to say, guys, I'm just like struggling to believe if this is true. Like it just feels foreign and unfamiliar and I can't tell up from down. And I had to confess that week after week. And the looks I was getting, they were like, come on, man, it's been five months. I'm like, I don't know what's happening. And then one day it just lifted by God's grace. If you're hearing all of this and understanding that deconstruction or reformation has less to do with doubts and more to do with your heart, you might be asking yourself, how do I make sure that I'm reforming and not deconstructing? Well, maybe this is helpful. I overheard our communication director, Ryan Crisman, say this the other day, reformation is with God, deconstruction is against God. So I think the main question I would ask you today, if you are in the season of doubt, is the same question Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe the core of Christianity or what we would call orthodoxy? This would be things that the church has believed and does believe for the past 2,000 years across denominational lines, that the Bible is God's word, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is offered freely to all sinners as the only way of redemption back to God, that God is triune, heaven and hell are real, the purpose and form of marriage and what it means to be a human made in his image. You see, doubt reveals what our heart posture truly is. So if you believe in God, then praise him. 
But if you don't believe in God, I would ask you maybe for the first time, even if you've been a part of church for a long time, to actually put your faith in Jesus. For those who are willing to stand on orthodoxy and cling to Jesus, the good news I would tell you is that I think that is evidence that Jesus is holding on to you. That he who began a good work in you will see it through to the end. On a practical level, if you're dealing with questions, the church has been around for two millennia, and that means your questions and my questions aren't new. So I would invite you to do some deep work of studying and reading. Some modern voices you could uh, read would be Tim Keller or Rebecca McLaughlin. Another classic kind of British old school move would be C.S. Lewis. My personal favorite would be the African church fathers of Augustine or Athanasius. I asked my wife if we could name our next child Athanasius. She said no. Um, middle school would have been rough on them. But I digress. Uh, A.J. Soboa, in his book After Doubt, points out that the ancient church had the same questions we have, but they were willing to wrestle with them for 40 years. You and I give them about six months. The next thing I would say is you need to walk this path in community, not in isolation. You need to ask others to pray for you. Find older saints and ask them, how have you made it through? Fighting in the day is always easier than fighting in the dark. Maybe that looks like joining a gospel community or uh, taking one of our Northway training classes just to get around other believers and do life with them. Finally, I would urge you to continue abiding. Return back to the scriptures even when the pages feel heavy, dull, or dry. Continue to pray. God is not scared of your honesty. It could be that God is cultivating in you a deeper love for him that learns to persist, persist despite the lack of any tangible presence or return on investment in that moment. And when the Holy Spirit brings the spark to that kindling you have placed around your heart, it will be glorious. By the grace of God, we come out of the other side of the valley of doubt with a deepened faith and a transformed character that looks more like Jesus that morning in Rome, I was finally able to get my bearings. I got on the right train, got uh, on the taxi that ridiculously overcharged me to get on the flight to come home. Uh, on the flight back, there was this moment of relief when I realized even though I felt uh, this, this situation of disorientation and being lost, I was coming home. In a similar way, when God strengthens us to persevere through the trial of doubt, we get to come back home to that core faith of Christianity with the confidence that God does not lose his children. The path back to that faith might be a new path to us, but we end up home all the same. Or as it has been said by others, we never do get back to Narnia the same way twice. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we got to see Jesus today. I ask that for the men and women in this room who are feeling the disorientation of doubt, that you would just meet them in a moment of tangible presence today, that you would give them endurance to follow you even in the desert, 
would you seek and save among us today? For those in here who, who don't know Jesus or wouldn't claim to be a Christian, God, would you do something in their heart, even in the next five minutes, that they don't have a category for it? Jesus, would you save? Would you move? Would you redeem? Would you bring revival? Would we know at the end of the day that your presence is with us and that is more than enough? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.